Well, good morning, everyone. Let me go ahead and get settled in here. <clears throat> I pray uh, that you have been encouraged this morning thus far by the things that we have uh, sung. You know, I was sitting right outside my office here and uh, worshiping the same way you were, and um, just super thankful for the the level of love and care that people put into um, selecting not only music but songs that that really portray and reflect the character of God and in great and amazing ways. And so I pray you are equally as thankful, even though, uh, you know, we're still sort of live streaming here. Uh, I pray that you are thankful in the same way we are, that we still have a way to sort of stay connected and to not only sing with each other, but to uh, to study God's word. And so with that in mind, I uh, have a couple of things that I want to mention to you this morning. One is uh, by way of housekeeping, but it's an important aspect of housekeeping. And that is that I, I want to continue to sort of emphasize as we we live in a, a world right now that has a, a growing range of opinions on what we should be doing and when we should be doing it regarding really just about anything from restaurants to, uh, to movie theaters. There's a, a lot of difference of opinion today and we are going to do what I promised we would do from the very first Sunday that we, we adapted to this, this way of worshiping at least on Sunday with each other and that is we're going to remember what we learned in Second Timothy, and that is that God has given us not a spirit of fear or, or timidity, but of, of power, of love, and of, of sound mind, sound thinking. And so uh, for the next few weeks at least, we are going to continue um, to meet like this. You, you might have noticed that movie theaters are on the last sort of stretch of things that are allowed to open. And if you have not been with us for any amount of time or are visiting with us here today, we have met in a movie theater for 10 years. So we have a couple of transition plans that I'll lay out for you next week. But uh, for this week, I want you to know that the best way to still stay connected to us and to figure out what is going on, if you have questions about Sunday gathering, is to either go to the website and look at that Corona tab or contact the office, call us, email us, whatever, and we'll keep you posted on, on what is going on. Now, having said that, um, what I do want you to know is that um, beginning in these weeks that follow, what we are going to do is what we do best, and that is continuing um, to ramp up and encourage community. So community is one of the three guiding values that we have, gospel, community, and mission. And I want you to know that even though we're not able to physically gather in a movie theater yet, we are still able to, to be with each other within safe, safety and reason. So um, I want to encourage you to think about two things today. The first is that uh, our community group ministry has thrived in the midst of this whole thing. They're still meeting online, and a few of them towards the back end of this month are going to begin getting together in small groups outside. So we're beginning to make some progress there. And I want to encourage you, if you've never been a part of a community group, then uh, you are truly missing out on part of what God's church is. This time we spend together for an hour and 15 minutes or so on Sundays is very valuable. But if you think about it, it's just a small sliver of what it means to be in community with other people who love Jesus. Because we spend the rest of the 6.75 days of the week not in this environment. So please think about uh, connecting with a community group. And you can contact us and we'll get you set up. They meet at different times throughout the week. I am positive there is one um, that will work for you. And you can just sort of pipe in and get on that, uh, on that train. Very important. And then secondly, I mentioned this last week or two weeks ago, and it's actually been very encouraging that one of the, the middle ground transitions we're going to be making until we can meet publicly again is what I want to call sort of like worship watch parties. And that is uh, the majority of you right now, and some of you have already begun doing this. You're sitting somewhere in your house 
watching this. And so we've asked if you would be interested in, in being a host house uh, to, to let us know. And there have already been two folks that have mentioned that they would love to be able to do this. And what that simply means is that um, if we cannot fully gather in the way that we want to right now, it could be that 10 or 12 people that are good friends of yours come to your house and rather than you watching the stream alone, you have a lunch with them or a breakfast with them and, and you worship together with them. So if you're interested in being a, a host house as we continue to step forward and get back to normalcy, whatever that looks like, uh, please let us know uh, in the comment thread. You can call the office, you can email us, whatever. Just let us know that and we can get you some information on the who, what, when, where, and whys of all that stuff. And there'll be more detailed information about that in the weeks that follow. Now, with all that said, um, if you're visiting with us, again, I want to welcome you uh, to, to Restoration Church. This is the home office, my home office of Restoration Church, where for the last 10 years we have conducted the majority of the business affairs of our church. And it's, uh, it's a very comfortable place for me. And so I'm sort of excited to give you all a peek into where the operational elements of, of Restoration Church function from. And right now what we're going to do is jump back into a teaching that uh, is about suffering. So last week we took a little bit of a break because of Mother's Day and we had a Q&A discussion panel with some of our moms about parenting and just family life during this time. Incredibly fruitful discussion. If you missed that, uh, go back and listen to that either in the live stream, which is now recorded, or on our website. Super fruitful discussion. But uh, I want to sort of catch you up to where we've been. And that is, we started a series, a little mini-series you might say, about a month ago that is entitled Understanding or, or, or Making Sense of, of Suffering. And the reason I wanted to talk about that is because in times when things are difficult, sort of like what we've been dealing with, even though it does look like things are beginning to move in a, in a more positive direction, I'm thankful for that, I want to remind us that this will not be the last time in our lives that we deal with a, a difficult circumstance. And so this teaching has really been designed to give us some tools and clear understanding of of what suffering is and isn't, how God, we see again today in this text we're reading, how God can make good out of even the most difficult circumstances. And I promised you that uh, towards the back end of this, we would start to look at some, some cause. And that's what we're going to talk about today, mainly what some of the causes for suffering are, are not. And that is why we read from John chapter 9. And so to begin today, I want to share with you a, a, a parallel example of what's happening in John chapter 9. Uh, some time ago, I read an interesting account of something that was written by a, 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 an English uh, pastor. It happened in England. Respected guy. Some of you might even know him. His name is N.T. Wright. He was a, he's a former bishop, pastor, pastor, has written a lot of books, and really just a, uh, really a pretty intelligent fella. And he wrote about this, this news story that he watched happen in his own country where a news excuse me, somebody was fired from their job for making comments uh, about the afterlife, really offensive and problematic comments. Now, when I first started reading this story, you might be thinking what I was thinking. I was waiting to sort of see the name of a pastor or a, a you know, seminary professor or somebody that was you know, steeped in religious studies. But the irony in this is that this person was not a prevalent leader in any way in the church. There was, there was no notoriety from that side of the fence. It actually was a popular soccer culture, as the Europeans would call it, football. We call it soccer in America. This was a very popular soccer coach of an English team. And he was quoted as saying, and I'm reading to you now this. He said, people who suffered from physical birth defects and disabilities had them because they were being punished for sins they had committed in a former life. So in some random news conference, he just blurted this out. And I want to I state that again. 
He said people who suffered from physical birth defects and disabilities had them because they were being punished for sins they had committed in a former life. Now, rightfully, many people were shocked by the statement. A few appalled, had tons of questions about it. And as that story developed, N.T. Wright said that the, the media began reporting this coach's statement, not just as a statement, but it sort of morphed into like a, a Christian doctrine. Uh, as, as, the, as this kind of circulated, and the more that people discussed it, the more people just assumed it was like a hardened Christian belief, that the only perspective we have on suffering is that, you know, if, if there is a hardship, we've either done something very wrong, or, you know, God is sort of just torturing us or punishing us. And if you do your homework, you will, you will quickly see that this statement that he made is a textbook definition of something called karma, which is a, a very popular, um, I don't affirm it obviously, but it's a very popular belief in our, our world today. And karma is actually from the Hindu tradition. And it basically says, listen, if you do good things, then good things will eventually come to you. And if you do bad things, then bad things will eventually come to you. And that, that sounds real good and sort of, sort of clean and nice neat and tidy, but the problem is when you are doing good things and bad things happen to you, or when you see good things happening to bad people, that's when this idea of karma really begins to be thrown out the window. And here's the ironic part of this whole story, both this sort of common belief that people hold in our world today, and the reality of these statements that were made from the soccer coaches. Uh, there are a lot of Christians who claim to follow Jesus, who see suffering and hardship in their world, as, as this. This is how they understand it. They might not verbalize it as saying they believe karma because that would not make sense and nor is it compatible with the Christian belief. But what happens is people live as if this statement is concretely true. And so our, our teaching today is about what many have come to call the problem of suffering. That's what we've been discussing over these past weeks. There are two prior teachings online that precede this, where we looked at some stuff that was happening in Paul's life. Those are standalone messages, as is this one, but I certainly would encourage you to listen to them if you have not, because by putting all this together, you'll start to see the sort of thematic nature in where we're going with, with addressing and understanding suffering. And so we looked at some writings from the Apostle Paul, who was unjustly suffering in a prison cell, that's a great example of a guy doing good things and something very bad happened to him. And so uh, automatically we have to get to the truth of Scripture to process and interpret situations and circumstances rather than opinions or beliefs and other, other worldviews. And so today we're going to look at that idea that we introduced in Paul's life a few weeks ago through Jesus' words in the Gospel of John. I want to sort of put that those spectacles on and begin to further our, our dialogue. And what I want to do is shed some more light on what is perhaps the biggest question that people have about suffering. And this is especially true if you have any kind of love or affection or relationship with God. The question usually goes something like this. If, if God loves us, then why do we suffer? You know, if, if we serve a loving God who cares about us, why, why do we suffer? And inherent in that question is something deeply troubling about how we see and perceive the character of God. And that is what I really want to talk about today. And so we begin by examining how Jesus corrects the nature of that very question his disciples ask him in a first century world scenario. That's the question they want to know. They're, all these people here are trying to figure out what happened to this guy that made him blind? What did he do that, that has caused so much suffering in his life? And Jesus' response shows us something very important. It actually gives us some clarity and something to think about when it comes to how we understand suffering. And the only idea I want to talk about today, based on Jesus' words, is this. 
when we talk about suffering, we have to know that there is no simple or pat answer to the question, why do people suffer? And I want to show you why I believe that, based on what Jesus says in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he went along, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, they're speaking to Jesus, automatically they're casting blame. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, like, there's the karma thing. You heard a soccer coach saying it, and here you have Jesus' very disciples saying, like, what did this guy's parents do to bring this upon him? Like, or what did he do? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, and here's where this gets interesting, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, that is a very simple sentence. But it's, it's, it's complex in the way that it sort of stirs our emotions. And I want you to know that whenever we discuss suffering or trial or hardship, um, I don't know that there's ever a perfect answer. This is not just for Christianity. This is for all the realms of dialogue in the world today. If you have any kind of empathy in your heart, there is no perfect, like, ah, got it moment where, where suffering or hardship just becomes something okay. For most of us, we will, we will gain clarity and understand its purposes, and sometimes we bring it upon ourselves. But the reality of this situation here is we don't want to unjustly cast blame or misinterpret or misunderstand God's relationship with us when it, when it comes to this. And so there is no simple or pat answer to the question, why do people suffer? There's never any volume of words that I can give you that can make suffering feel okay. And that is because we are truly emotive beings. And suffering is a true problem. It's a true hardship in life. And so this answer Jesus gives his disciples here can be a very hard pill for some of us to swallow. I would say most of us to swallow. Because we as people often have a hard time with the unknown. What they want is a clear and immediate answer. And what Jesus gives them is not as clear or as immediate as they want. In this passage, Jesus' disciples want a, they want a soundbite answer to a very complex situation. And unfortunately, if you look at our world today, perhaps more than ever, this is how we as people have been conditioned to learn. Uh, if, you, if you watch the news, you know, it's important to stay connected with the news, but I would definitely discourage you from from tuning into the news entertainment cycle 24-7, it can be incredibly uh, frustrating. Like, for example, if you're watching the news today, you have some people broadcasting like the world will be over in three days, and others are saying like this whole thing around us is, is, a, is a hoax. And so I, I want to be mindful of what I'm saying here, that you use discernment when you watch the news. But perhaps the, the news entertainment cycle is the best example we have of this, where you'll have sometimes three to ten people in a panel discussion, and you'll have one anchor who asks them arguably like one of the most complicated questions in the world. Something like, how can we solve global poverty? And then all ten of these people will have like three and a half minutes to answer this question. And so what's happening is, is there's, there's never any time to process it or elongate the answer or think about it. We, we sort of frame our understanding of learning today do soundbite culture. We want somebody to answer that question in incredibly quickly. However, the most complex issues in our society are not solved by 10 pundits arguing as quickly as they can to get their voice heard in one of the most significant questions that the world offers us in two to three minutes. The reason we experience pain and suffering of any sort never has a simple soundbite answer like the disciples are looking for here. And that's the first thing I really want to point out. Their, their line of questioning shows us a, a condition that all humanity suffers from. 
And that is that when we are faced with the shadows of the unknown, when there is something in front of us that we don't fully have clarity on, whatever the difficulty is, if, if there is a circumstance in our lives that is making ourselves uncomfortable, when there is darkness in what we know, we want it lit up. When there is uncertainty, we prefer answers. And when we don't get them, this is when we can tend to get frustrated or fearful or, you know, you can fill in your own emotive description there. This is, this is when we can sort of have our faith tested or challenged. And this is simply because the majority of us are uncomfortable with the idea of mystery of any sorts. And by mystery, I'm going to be really, really clear with this. By mystery, I simply mean not knowing every finite detail all the whys of every single thing happening in our lives or in our world. We're going to move on past mystery here in a second. There's a lot we can know about suffering. But this type of mystery that I'm talking about is not blind ignorance. It's sort of the fact that if you really think about any situation in your life, you have never had a circumstance, none of us have, where we knew every single little detail and fact about every single circumstance. Even the most well-laid-out plans oftentimes are subjected to changes and challenges because like I said a few weeks ago that life can be like the sea one day it's tranquil calm and calm and flat and then the next day you know you have winds and waves raging and I'll, I'll further prove this the, the discipline of science which you know we say regularly we respect at restoration is what sort of largely not entirely but largely drives our culture there's been a shift in what's driving our culture today a little bit anyways more towards the soci sociological side of things uh, a sermon for, for another day. But in, in large, science is what drives our culture. And this is a perfect example of the way we think. The whole point of science is to bring clarity to the things of the world that we don't yet fully understand. And while that attitude is a very good thing that we have all greatly benefited from, I mean, sciences and technologies are why I'm sitting before you right now. Everything we're doing right now is the answer to a question. How do we connect people? Well, some engineer figured out, some scientists figured out how to make all this stuff happen so that we can do this, right? We greatly have greatly benefited from, from having some of the areas of darkness lit up, especially through technology. In both faith and science, we have to get comfortable with the fact that there are going to be some things that we do not have a full and perfect understanding of. And that's really the first thing that I want to try to lay out today is that it's actually just not true to think that there is anything on earth that can give us an ultimate and finite clarity. For as much as we know in the sciences, we, we equally don't know as much, which is why science perpetuates its discipline to learn and unravel uh, the mysteries of of, of, of our world. And the same is true in, in our faith. In Christianity, suffering is a bit of a complex mystery. I can't give you, you know, three rhyming words that solve every question you've ever had about suffering. However, I, I want to point out that it is not a total mystery. And we make a mistake if we treat it that way too. And so here is a guiding statement that brings some clarity to the problem of, of suffering. In fact, it's what I would offer you as the answer uh, to why we suffer, and we'll unpack it this morning. And it is this. All suffering takes place because of sin in general, but not all suffering is because of sin in particular. Let me say that again. It is sort of like the takeaway statement of everything we have been and we'll talk about. All suffering, no matter what form it takes on earth, takes place because of sin in general, but not all suffering is because of sin in particular. And the implication of the disciples' question uh, really shows us they believe suffering occurred as some form of payback for a person's sin. They literally are, are 
teaching and asking Jesus about this concept of karma that we just mentioned. And the reason I mentioned karma a lot this morning is because a lot of people who follow Jesus have this belief system at the heart of what they understand their life in Christ to be. In other words, they have less of an understanding of what Jesus says here and more of a uh, they've been sort of inoculated to sort of understand suffering as do good, get good, do bad, get bad. And whenever that paradigm is rocked, like it is in karma, we begin to have a potential faith crisis. And so in scripture, what we learn is that suffering first enters the world because man has sinned and turned away from God. In Genesis repeatedly, what we learn about the, the world is that God says that he created it. And, and before humanity fell, it was without suffering. And he mentions multiple times that the world he looked upon was very good, including humans, very good. Like we get, a, we get an extra good sort of assessment from God because out of all the things he has made, we, we are the apex of his creation. And so in Genesis 3, this sort of beautiful picture of life as we understand it, this is the first time we see human beings rebelling against God's ways as they begin to assert their own independence. And immediately what happens is, is the, the balance of creation is thrown off. And humanity is not only struggling now from a separation from God, there's a cosmic fracture between the relationship of God and people. There's also a cosmic fracture between us and ourselves and the people in the world that we, that we know. In other words, any relationship of any significance is now subject to this problem of, of, of hardship, trial, or suffering. And as a result of all these fractured relationships, what happens is suffering and death enters the world, and it remains in the world to this very day. So the, the world is no longer in peaceful harmony with the Creator, and one day it will be again when Jesus returns. But at this point, the world is no longer in peaceful harmony with the Creator because there is a, a profound shift in the relationship that we have with God, the world and all of humankind. And at the heart of that shift is, is what I want to say, sin in general. It's one, and one of the natural consequences of sin in general is that it, it births suffering. Now, obviously, a statement like that will raise some questions. And so this gives me another opportunity to encourage you to do two things right now. Anything I say this morning, if you have questions about it, I'd love for you to let us know them. I'll try to incorporate some answers or some teaching into what we're doing in the weeks that follow. But these teachings that we have here, these are also the things that we discuss in community groups. So I want to encourage you, if you are saying like, man, that's interesting, I've never thought about it that way, or I don't necessarily agree with that, I'd like to ask a question. There are places to do that, both formally with our church and, and informally in community group discussion. One more reason why I want to encourage you to move beyond just an hour on Sunday and, and to get into some type of meaningful relationship with others so that this, this teaching can be something we, we learn to apply and live out in our lives. Because all of the things I'm saying today will likely raise questions. And I obviously don't have the time to answer every single one or, or predict or foreshadow them. And so we really see this evidenced in the negative assumption buried in the question the disciples ask Jesus. There is an assumed character problem in who God is, and we see this because of what they ask. They want to know if this man, the blind man in John 9, or his parents sinned in such a way that caused God to, to stricken him with blindness. And the disciples are assuming, like many in that day, that their sin in particular is always connected to suffering. In other words, this guy had to do something in order to be like this. And we just said, to a certain degree, I would never want to say that, that sin in particular can't cause suffering. For example, um, you know, look, at, look at alcoholism. This is a great example. You know, if you overdrink your whole life or, or mismanage your body, not caring for yourself, 
can cause natural consequences. So it's, it's not to say, for example, that the sin of drunkenness perpetuated throughout a life can't create problems. I'm just saying we have to be very mindful of Jesus's response here. He's saying that's not the only reason that, that suffering enters the world or that we experience suffering. He explicitly says, neither this man nor his parents particularly sinned in a way that earned this affliction. There is no karma here. In fact, he also points out rather quickly that this, this faulty connection that the disciples make between this man's particular sin, his blindness, and their opinions on what has caused his suffering. Now, I want to briefly look at the, the, the disciples' answers here. They, they give two reasons, or two potential causes, we might say, for how they understand this man's suffering. And I'm going to look at them out of order as far as how John 9 goes, just that I, I think it's a little more clear to teach it this way. They, they, they cast two reasons for, for this man's blindness. Let's look at these examples. First, they ask if his parents caused his suffering. The first thing they want to know is if this man's parents did something before he was even born and God was so angry with them that he literally just took out his frustration on this man and made him blind. And this is what we like to call blame deferral. It's one of the main, we can, you can see this sort of in counseling circles, um, it, blame deferral impedes progress in life in every single way. Let me explain what I mean by that. The disciples first crack at this as they attempt to defer blame. And in Jesus' day, it wasn't uncommon for people to think, just like today, that you were suffering because somebody else's sin had implicated you. Now, in this case, they sort of evoke an, an Old Testament idea of what you Old Testament theologues will know as gen generational sin. And it's this idea that, that your parents could so mess up that the punishment would sort of linger in your life because of it. And I'll give you a first world example, a first century example of this. At this time in, in Jewish law, keep in mind there's a lot of Jewish law during the first century world. Uh, if a pregnant mother were to go and worship at a non-Jewish temple, worship another god there, her unborn child was also considered to have been participating in that sin. And I know that that might seem a little bit out of sorts for us today, but it was the reality in their complex law system at the time. That, that child, who really had no say in the matter or affair, was also considered sinning because her mom, or, or his mom, decided to, to go worship another god. And if you think about this in, in your own life, if we see the problem of suffering as having to have a, a deferral to blame, what will happen is we will likely answer the question, why am I suffering, by blaming others for it. Now, it is not my point today to talk about the fact that sometimes people can do things that cause us to suffer. That's undoubtedly true. But that's a pretty clear answer. Uh, if somebody robbed you of all your money, you could, you could clearly explain why you are suffering uh, with a financial problem. Those are sort of the places where things are easily lit up. I want to talk about the places where they're not so easily lit up. And so if we, if we think with deferral, blame deferral, assuming... Uh, deferral of blame on somebody else, we answer the question, why am I suffering, by almost automatically blaming somebody else or something. And in doing so, what happens is not only can we subtly begin to misunderstand the character and nature of God, we will absolutely miss out on what we have said, one of the great things God can do through our lives in circumstances that are not so great. God can repurpose and use these things for good. In fact, with this blind man, what he, what he really points out is that this man's blindness is going to let people see the glory of God. In other words, his suffering, let me tell you, I'm not as concerned about where you guys think it came from 
He's saying, what I'm telling you is that you're about to see me do something that reveals the goodness and the grace of God. This man will see again. Focus your efforts on the right, the right question. is not how did it happen, but what are you doing in the situation? And so if we don't see suffering from this angle, if we don't recognize the ultimate hope, that God can bring good things out of difficult circumstances, then we'll start to say things like this. Well, I'm suffering because of what, what this person did to me. Or you'll say things like, you know, I can't keep a job because my daddy just never told me responsibility. And that's that's why I'm, I'm perpetually late and get fired all the time. Or, you know, if my parents just loved me a little more, I would be a, a better person. Or if you'd have been a better friend to me, I would not be in this mess. Or, you know what, spouse, as you're going through a divorce or a struggle, if you'd have just loved me more, well, then this thing would have would have worked out the the possibilities of blame deferral are are infinite and sometimes they can be true but what i want to point out here is that if if we are ever at a place where we adopt this unhealthy heart attitude of immediately looking at our lives and thinking somebody else or something or god himself did something to cause this then what we are likely going to develop is an incredibly bitter heart towards everything and everyone we think is causing this hurt in our life. And that does not lead us to experiencing any type of God's goodness, any type of God's faithfulness, or His grace during hardship. What it will likely do is calcify your heart in hardness and anger. If this man truly walked away from this conversation believing he was blind because God was bored and just decided to strike him with blindness, what would happen is that that doesn't necessarily create the kind of loving God that you, you want to follow. And that's why Jesus addresses this. This deferral will impede life process in every way. And people usually practice this blame deferral because, here's the reason, it immediately removes the mystery of the source of suffering. This is one way to light up the unknown circumstances of our lives. It immediately lights up the shadows of mystery we can't fully explain. Think about this. If I can categorically blame you for what's happening to me, it at least gives me the why, right? I get a clear and obvious reason for why I'm suffering. And for a lot of us, that, that's very consoling. To have that question answered is sort of the nature of why we're taking some time teaching this. And this obvious problem, or the problem with this way of thinking, is that you might actually wrongly blame others for your troubles, like the disciples did. And that's why we've got to be careful here. Because what happens here is that they're, they're automatically blaming somebody for this man's hardships. And Jesus is very clear that those somebodies they're blaming have nothing to do with it. And I want to take this a step further, because I said earlier that sin in general has, has really created a problem for all of us in all ways, in every relationship. And that even includes the relationship we have with ourselves. There can be times where we even pardon ourselves for some of the pain that we might have really brought upon ourselves. So if, you know, if we have had a relationship with somebody and, and we have sown seed in that relationship, really destroyed it, like if you, if you think about a marriage or a friendship and we've really done things to, to damage a relationship, what happens here is we, we can actually reap an unhealthy consequence from that. But the problem with blame deferral is that we'll never know that. Unless we actually get to the place where we can, before God, objectively, and with other people, say, you know what, I wasn't the best person in this situation, and I am sorry. And for some of us, it might even mean going to somebody and, and asking for forgiveness. But the problem is, is if we always think it's everybody else's fault, or somebody else's fault, this way of thinking tends to just create bitterness in us, and it creates a world against me. It's me against the world. 
It hardens the heart rather than helps us to more deeply understand Jesus. And so in short, this answer to the suffering question, outsourcing the blame for suffering to others sort of blindly, is, is common in our culture. I say it regularly, just look at Twitter. If you want to see a great blame deferral tool, look at Twitter. It's basically people destroying each other all day on what's wrong with the world in the comfort of an air-conditioned room while they're getting carpal tunnel syndrome with their thumbs, right? When it comes to outsourcing blame, we want to make sure that we are not doing it erratically or unwisely. And I also want to say, this is how we're going to begin to wrap up this morning, that when it comes, especially in the Christian world, when it comes to the easiest person to cast blame upon, oftentimes it's not even other people. It's, it's oftentimes God. He's the most accused. In fact, part of what the disciples say here, they're assuming that God has done this. And this leads me to the second suggested reason for this man's suffering, at least according to the disciples. The first is, was it his parents, some kind of blame deferral? The second suggested reason, according to the disciples, for this man's suffering is that God had caused it in his life because of his personal sin. So they're saying it was either somebody did it to him, or he did something so bad that God made him blind. And if you've read the Old Testament, again, you know that this is sort of the, it's the repeated story of what I like to call the, the Job complex. In the book of Job, if you recall in that Old Testament story, Job is a pretty godly guy who goes through un, unbearable hardship. He loses everything he has, his family. I mean, as far as stories of hardship go, he is at the top of the list in the scripture. And just like the disciples here, um, he's got a, a group of friends around him that are trying to, to light up the shadows of what is going on in his life. They mean well. Trust me, if you, if you look at their intentions, I don't think that Job's friends were, were trying to mislead him or hurt him, but they just had absolutely terrible counsel for him. The basis of what they tell him, the reason that all this hardship has come to him, is they're saying, you know, God's punishing you. All this suffering and all this pain and all this loss, it has to be happening because God, you, you've just done something to greatly anger God. And they see God, again, this is a, this statement has a character assumption about God. They see God as being a God who has this sort of petty tit-for-tat mentality about the way he treats sin in the world, about the way he treats us when it comes to sin. Don't hear me saying that God does not have the prerogative, the right, or even does judge sin at times. I, don't, I mean, I believe that wholeheartedly. That's in the Bible. But the problem with, with reading that into Job or reading that into John is the, the immediate assumption is someone's personal sin is the reason for their suffering. That's what the Job's friends think, and that's what these disciples think about Jesus. Jesus, excuse me, these disciples think about the blind man in Jesus' life. The challenge with both of these stories is that in the book of Job, it opens by telling us um, Job is actually a, a godly man. Like, I'm not saying he did not ever sin, but it's not, he, he's like one of the most righteous men on earth. So the, the karma paradigm immediately breaks down. Yet he suffers greatly. And in the New Testament story we're reading, you have the same principle. We, we are told explicitly that this per person has not done anything to, to merit this type of retaliation from, for God. And if this were true, that this is how God worked, then it would appear that God is, is sort of applying punishment that doesn't fit a natural crime. In fact, the story of Job ends with us learning that, that while his suffering was certainly not out of God's control, that does not mean that God could not have stopped it. God was not the source of it in that moment. And like the disciples, his friends were wrong about the cause of suffering. His friends led him to believe, and even Job's sort of fist-shaking in the middle of the book, all assume God is doing this to him. But he's not. 
And so sometimes we as people, we blame God for everything that goes wrong in our lives. And I think that that is easy to do. It's easy to make God a scapegoat because he's probably not going to ring your doorbell or retweet what you say to him um, when you cast this type of an accusation against your God. When we believe this, that, that uh, we use God as a scapegoat for every problem in the world, we start to believe that suffering happens because God is some cruel, oppressive deity who, who takes pleasure like in, in torturing us on rainy days when he's bored. He just... You know, he decided to throw a coronavirus into the world because he had nothing going on in heaven. This is sort of where we naturally end up here. We believe that God holds this sort of eye-for-an-eye philosophy, and every time we mess up, he's just anxiously awaiting with a rod to inflict pain and hurt in our lives. And this is not patently true. On the inverse, here's the challenge with this. If you believe this way about the circumstances in your life that are difficult, you will also believe this way. You'll get mad, frustrated on the other side of the fence. On the inverse, if you believe this way, you'll get mad when you are doing good things in your life and you feel like you're not being rewarded enough by God as you see fit. This is essentially karma 101. Uh, why, why God? Uh, you know, I'm out doing everything you ask me to do. I'm reading your Bible. I'm praying. All the things we think we have to do to earn God's love. What happens here is we can start to think God is not giving us our, our net worth, our due. And so seeing God like this is, is deeply wrong on both sides of the fence. And while there is no doubt God must deal with sin and ultimately did on the cross, I'm not saying he's, he's turning a blind eye to sin. I just want to connect this idea of blame deferral and God's fault as being the ultimate and always causes of sin. Think about this. While there's no doubt God must deal with sin and ultimately did on the cross, the overarching truth of the Christian faith is that God went to great lengths to forgive you and I of our sin, not to punish you and I for our sins. That is the narrative of the gospel. And, and if we didn't have this man named Jesus that we read about, then I would be unable to make this claim. But we sort of theologically turn this idea of karma on its head when we, when we understand that the story of Scripture is God relentlessly going to great lengths, pursuing us, calling us back, to, to mend that relationship that we see broken in the garden. And so it's kind of interesting that we might think that God's grace is free to us on the cross, uh, but then we live as if God is, is, there is no grace with God, or that God then just immediately wants to turn around and torture us. Everything, the foundation of the Christian faith, is that when we sin, God put himself on the cross in our stead. God chose to, to take the problem of sin himself. On, on his behalf, he did this for us. He didn't put us on that cross. He put himself on that cross. And this foundational Christian truth is why we must be very careful to avoid developing unhealthy understandings of God's character when it comes to suffering and trial in our lives. If we automatically believe God's doing this to me for fill in the blank, we will likely become the types of people who walk around completely unaware of the goodness of God in our life. It's going to be very hard to sense God's goodness if you think that he literally exists just to make you miserable. And this will, uh, will immediately create this, this blame complex, whether it's other people or God himself. This is a, a belief system we need to be distinctly careful of. And I, I'll leave you with this, I, I, uh, since I sort of opened with some some uh, a teaching or a story from N.T. Wright. I'll leave you with, a, with a, quote and a, a quote and a handful of comments I'd like to share with you about how he describes not just this story, but what I would say is a, this is a good, a good quote for suffering in general. 
And here it describes how Jesus addresses these, these faulty ways of believing regarding suffering when he says this. He says, Jesus firmly resists that this in the way God has ordered the world. This is the way God has ordered the world. The world is much stranger than that and darker than that. And the light of God's powerful, loving justice shines more brightly than that. But to understand it all, we have to be prepared to dismantle some of our cherished assumptions and to let God remake them in a different way. We have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine where people put in a good coin, a, a good act, say, or an evil one, and get out a particular result, a reward or a punishment. Of course, he goes on to say, actions always have consequences. Good things often happen as a result of good actions. Kindness can produce gentleness. And bad things often happen through bad actions. He says drunkenness causes car accidents. But this isn't inevitable. Sometimes kindness is scorned, and sometimes drunkards always get away with it. I want to read that to you one more time, because normally we'd be in a big room with these words behind me. And the depth and profound nature of this quote is so significant that I want to read it one more time so you can verbally process it with me. Jesus firmly resists that this is the way God has ordered the world, karma. The world is much stranger than that and darker than that. And the light of God's powerful, loving justice shines more brightly than that. But to understand it all, we have to be prepared to dismantle some of our cherished assumptions and let God remake them in a different way. We have to stop thinking of the world as a kind of moral slot machine, where people put in a good coin, a good act, say, or an evil one, and get out a particular result, a reward or a punishment. Of course, actions always have consequences. Good things often happen as a result of good actions. Kindness produces gratitude. And bad things often happen through bad actions. Drunkenness causes car accidents. But this isn't inevitable. Kindness is sometimes scorned, and some drunkards always get away with it. And so the point of John 9, the point of N.T. Wright's writings, and the teaching I'm trying to leave you with today, is that as, as we continue to look at this this subject of suffering, which is so prevalent and real in our world right now, we should know that it was never God's intentional, des intentional desire that we suffer. But we have been created as a people who, who really can make choices, and sometimes our choices bring about natural consequences, some clearer than others. So what we have to deal with now is that sin in general has brought about, in some ways, sin in particular into the world. There's, there's no way of getting around that, that every struggle we have is in some shape, way, form, or fashion connected to sin in general. We have to be mindful to not automatically connect it to some sin in particular. And the good news is that this is a reality that we read time and time again, as we did from the, the, the book of Philippians a few weeks ago, that God's point here is that we be the types of people who recognize God can bring good things, even out of circumstances we don't understand at all. He can, he can bring beauty out of the mess, whatever the mess is. And this is a hard-edged truth. I'm not naive to the fact that this has likely answered a lot of questions for you, but also creates some. And it is not necessarily the answer that we want. I mean, we would want the world to be a moral slot machine, where if I do one good thing, you do one good thing. But we don't have that world. So we have to recognize the hard-edged reality of this, is that we can, we can even see suffering... The beauty of it is that we can see suffering as something that God, not might, but will use to show us 
His incredible grace and love. That's what Jesus says in John 9. God's glory was revealed to the world through that situation with this blind man in John chapter 9. His goodness was revealed to the world when he chose to not just heal that man. We'll talk a little bit about this next week. But when Jesus on the cross chose to deal with all of our sin and to suffer himself on our behalf. He put his son on the cross to deal with the ultimate problem of pain, of sin, and suffering. He endured it in the same way we did or do so that he could identify with us in every way. And so we'll continue to look at this passage next week. But for this morning as we close, I want you to ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about how you see your life circumstances right now? How you see the circumstances in the lives of those you love and, and care for? And this is especially true if, if you are suffering right now. So ask yourself, what are you going to do about how you understand suffering? How are you going to believe differently this week? Maybe more in line with, with God's definition of of why suffering happens in the world. And, and my prayer for you is that if you are suffering, that you, you truly would reach out to somebody at our church, uh, the office, a friend that you have, and really seek support and encouragement during this time. And I also want to challenge you, if you've heard this and, and you are at a place in your life right now where you are not suffering, it is my genuine prayer that God would give you the eyes of empathy to see and sense those around you who are, so that you can be the light and life of Christ in that circumstance. And so my prayer for you this week is that you would dwell and experience the grace of God's goodness no matter what you do, and that you would share it through your words and deeds in your natural spheres of influence wherever God provides you an opportunity to do so. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, again, another time we have to worship you. I do pray, Lord, that these words from the Gospel of John chapter 9 would challenge us and encourage us to recognize that you are God and you are a good God. So I pray that we would see our lives through the lens of that promise. You have promised us in many places, but perhaps nowhere as clear as in Romans 8, that you can bring good things out of difficult circumstances. So may our heart's attention be focused on you. And may we seek answers in the places where, where we desire them. But I pray, Lord, that that our hunger to have the shadow lit up about what we do not know would never dwarf the light of what we do know. And that is that your son Jesus loves us, has died for us, bears every burden with us, carries us when we cannot, loves us and will never leave or forsake us. It is my prayer that that light would, would shine upon our hearts this week. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Now listen, in two or three minutes, you'll be on your way doing whatever it is you do. So I want to thank you for being with us here this morning. And I just want to mention to you a couple of, uh, of very important things. If you have any questions, concerns, objections, stuff going on in your life, please, please don't walk through these next days alone. Reach out to somebody at our church, through our office. Get in touch with us. We want to be able to, to minister to you. Or, or your friends. Even though we're not physically meeting in a building, the work of restoration has, at least in the 10 years I've been at this church, this is one of the most vibrant seasons of mission and ministry I have observed in our church. So please do not think, because we are not physically gathered, that God is not working out His good causes and purposes through the people of restoration. He is. And I thank you for your continued fidelity to, to love and serve your neighbor. And please, if you're a person who needs to be loved or served right now, let, let us minister to you in that capacity. And I also want to thank you all, uh, those of you who are gospel partners or members of Restoration, for your continued faithfulness uh, and, and generosity. Uh, we thank you for your continued giving, which, uh, which it's, it's amazing to me that for 10 full years, um, we, as, as partners and members of Restoration, have supported the mission and the ministry of our church. 
with our tithes and offerings. And so I thank you for that. I want to encourage you to continue that, especially during a time when we are likely to see um, increased benevolence needs. And as I mentioned last week, we have already made a donation to the HOME is the name of the organization in Daytona. They help to deal with uh, folks. They deal with a lot of things, but particularly folks who are struggling with the reality of domestic violence uh, right now. We as a church want to make sure that our, t- our time and our efforts and our finances are used to share the gospel wherever God provides us that opportunity. So if you're interested in giving, you can go to our website and do that there. The link will be in our stream here. Um, you can also mail your check into our church office. That information will also be posted on the stream here and is found on our website. But I encourage you all to continue to do good works in the name of Jesus in these weeks. Stay tuned to what's going on and know that uh, we really do miss you all and look forward to the day when we can gather again corporately under under one roof. But until that time, recognize that we are still bound in Jesus through the power of his spirit and one in him. So as you go this week, think about what we've discussed about suffering. Let God minister to your heart or use you to minister to another's heart. And as you go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father in heaven, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. Amen.